It's the second Tuesday of the month, 4 p.m., time for Boat Talk on our community radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org digitally. With your hosts, John Johansson and Alan Sprague, and today is voting day. If you haven't already voted, um, you can listen to this show while you're in your car and just make sure that you go vote today. It's important. WERU is in the midst of our fall fundraiser. There are many locally produced public affairs shows on WERU, all made by volunteers for you WERU listeners. Community radio is an important part of this community, and it's community support that keeps this station strong. Support that continually needs renewal. Please call 469-6600 and help keep WERU going. Thank you. We begin, as usual, with John and what's happening in the many main boat shops. Well, I was at Bristol Marine, which is in Booth Bay Harbor. And Bristol Marine has in, uh, the shed that's right off of the, not the big railway, it's the one that's over to next to it that doesn't handle as big a boat, but it hauled up a 78-foot Alden schooner called Summer Wind that was actually built in Thomaston by the Charles A. Morse Company in 1929. She was rebuilt several years ago, and she's been given a modern rig and, and systems. But she's in there just for some minor work. They're going to do some, they're going to re- repair the transom. They got some, a lot of varnishing, cosmetic work. And then she's going to go back over in the spring. Eros is 103 foot. She was built in England by Brooks and Motorcraft Company in 1939. And she's a charter boat. And so she's in for some uh, woodwork, not extensive, uh, some planking. And then they're going to do some painting. They're going to spline the top sides and then paint her. And then she should be out of the yard because she's on the main railway. She'll be out of the yard in November and head for the islands and do the charter season. The Gloucester fishing schooner, the Ernestina Morrissey, she's off the railway. She was has been there, I think it was more than five years. Yeah. And But a lot of that, that wasn't the yard's fault. That was a government problem because the government had to approve everything you did on that boat or you didn't get paid. So it would sit on the railway with nothing going on, which is kind of sad. She probably could have been done in three or four years. What's kind of really interesting is that it only took them, what, six months to build the real one, <laughs> the first one? <laughs> so, but anyways... So she's she's sitting at uh, Wooten's Wharf, which is owned by Hodgson uh, Yacht Services, and uh, they only had a few things left to do, uh, some interior systems and finish up the rig, and she was headed out probably mid-fall. You know, she'll probably still be there this weekend, but she'll probably be gone maybe the end of October, at least November she'll be gone. And then they may have a, uh, a project up on Moosehead Lake working on the Katy, which most people know her as Katahdin. Um, most of us who know her really well call her Katie. And she may have some deck work done, but that's not carved in stone yet. And then I asked about the friendship of Salem. Well, she sits in Salem, Massachusetts. It's a replica of a 1790s vessel, and she needs some structural work. 
And they were hoping to actually bring her to Maine because it would cost a lot less to do her up here than to do it down there and put people up and all that stuff. So I don't know where that was. And they did say they, they're going to have some work on the Isaac Evans, which is a regular coastal schooner that uh, actually is chartered, you know, day, day charters. And then the 12-meter gleam is likely to be back in for some minor work. Brooklyn Boatyard still working on the on gin, which is a 64-footer that was owned by one of the head, the Commodores of the New York Yacht Club. But anyway, she's in and she's having some the interior completely redone. And she's got to be nearing completion because they've now got a 55-foot wheeler to build. They built a wheeler probably two or three years ago now. And I met Mrs. Wheeler in Newport at the boat show, and they've already ordered the plywood. Uh, they haven't finalized the design. Now, this boat was built in 1931 and by the Wheeler Company, which operated out of New York on the Hudson. And they went out of business after a major fire in the 60s. They were always in financial trouble after World War II because a lot of companies, uh, if they didn't operate well with the government, the government kind of put them out of business. But anyway, so they got that to build and they've got a Boatine 43. They've already started to lay up parts and pieces for her. And then they've also got a 47 footer uh, Jim Taylor design to do. So they're going to be really, really busy. They were in Newport with, with the other wheeler. I don't know if they were trying to sell that or just showing it off. And they also had their Ascena console boat that I guess the owner reneged on. And just a few days before the show was to start, the T-top arrived and they were able to get it on and get her down to Newport. And there was a lot of interest in her. Nobody threw a check at him at the show, but might later. I was at Peter Buxton's boat shop. He has a Cayman cat boat to build. So the middle of this month, in fact, in a week or so, he'll be headed to the Cayman Islands. He's going to go down there, measure out and loft uh, or, you know, do plans on three of their boats. And then they're going to pick which one they want. And he's going to come back home and take three months to build one. So that could be interesting to see how that goes. It's a relatively simple boat. It shouldn't take him too long to actually build it. This is a sailboat, right? Yep. Yep. The cat boat. Yep. And they use it for uh, just getting around and turtle fishing. So I don't know how big they are. He didn't actually say how big they were. Hmm. And then he may have a local guy came to him and asked for him to come up with a model to build a wooden cruiser. And so he's designed a 36 by 14 foot boat. He's carved a half hull for him. And he's waiting to see if the guy is actually going to opt to do it. Uh, mainly boats, which is down in Cushing. I was in there. They've been working on a Westmac 38 that's being built, finished out as a charter boat for a customer from New York. Kind of a simple boat. A lot of these are because they're, they're used for charter, so they don't want it very fancy because that means you got to get it banged up and, you know, gets used hard. And, you know, so most of these are pretty Spartan finished, you know, mostly fiberglass. Well done. So she should be done and by December and then she probably will not go in the water she'll just be taken outside and covered and then go over in the spring and then right over next to her is a Wayne Beale 42 being finished out as a split wheel lobster boat for a fisherman from Hartswell that's a pretty simple boat powered with a 750 John Deere then they've got a Calvin Beale 34 
that they're finishing out is a tuna boat that's going to go to South Carolina. She's going to get powered with a 600 horsepower Cummins. And then they've got a 36 Calvin arriving in the spring. And uh, that boat right there will be powered with a 650 horsepower FTP engine. Royal River Boatyard, it's kind of always interesting to go in there. They had three Peter Cass boats. No, they got four Peter Cass boats right then when I was there. Because the owner, Alan, has two. He has a 38, and I think it's a 44, which he is known as Rolling Stone, and his other one's delusional. And then his brother has Sand Dollars 3. Well, Twilight was in. She was just launched maybe a year ago, and she came in just for cosmetics. They hauled her out, and within three days, they had her sanded down because it wasn't a hard sanding job to do. And then they uh, gave her a new uh, topside coat of red and threw her back overboard in a couple of days. Mary Meeting, which is a boat that the Maine Maritime Museum operates, had an issue uh, hitting something, and they damaged the keel, and uh, they also broke one of the struts. Uh, shaft, actually, they broke. And so that was fixed and repaired in a week, and she was back ready to go. Shop to Shore, it was a guy, it's Renee, who used to work for Peter Cass, and he uh, actually took a 19-foot seaway and it was an old time fisherman and he wanted to have a lobster boat because he had sold his big boat. So he was looking for something smaller that he could handle, that he could haul out with a trailer and actually put in his yard and not have to worry about it. So they put a house on a 19 foot seaway. Well, it's very difficult to put a house on a 19 foot seaway and make it look halfway decent. But they actually did. It came out pretty good. And Renee was actually happy with it. And next to her was a 31 foot Olson. And I don't know who. Olson brothers were, but they built in Massachusetts about 40 years ago. And she came in to have all of her cabin top redone, the shelter, actually, not nothing to do with the trunk. And then she was getting spruced up and he actually had to also uh, take the engines out, paint them. He replaced much of the windshield. He re put in new fuel tanks and redid the teak platform and put in a new transom. And she was just getting the final touches and they were actually hoping to get her over by now and delivered to her customer in New York. So he could actually do some boating at the end of the season. Down there, they probably get another month or two. And then outside, he had a lineman that he was gonna fix that had some minor uh, issues because the owner ran her aground. And then he took it all apart and then he didn't dare to put it back together. You know how that goes, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a good thing. Strouts Point Wharf is in South Freeport and they have streamer. She was actually built as Crescent. She's a uh, Concordia 39, and they did extensive work to this boat. So they pulled out her keel. They replaced half the floor timbers. They did a lot of frame ends. They replaced some planking. They extended the mast step uh, aft uh, two floors to give her more stability, installed the new engine beds along with a new engine. And then they had a 46-footer Spirit yacht from Ipswich, coal-molded hull, it had to have repairs made to the deck because one of the winches came out. And that was not the problem of the construction. We'll leave it at that. Somebody left it tied to the dock. <laughs> uh -huh. And so they store a lot of boats. And, and most of what they store there is wooden boats. So it's always interesting to go in there and see what's going on. They, they actually store six Concordias. And it's kind of sad to hear, see this, but Concordia is not like they used to be. Like, remember in the 80s and 90s, that was the boat a lot of people wanted to own. Yeah. Well, now they're probably about half price. Huh. 
Then I went over and saw Stuart Workman at SW Boatworks because he's always interesting to talk to. And he's got a Calvin 36 in the main shop, the first bay where he started. And she's going to be a walk around. And he says that's the smallest boat he would ever do a walk around cabin on because you lose so much in the forecastle. And so down forward, she's got a forward stateroom with a triangular berth. No, that hold it. That's the 42. She's got a 750 horsepower engine. And it, there is uh, accommodations down below. There's a head and, you know, small galley is up. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see. It's basically a fishing boat, you know, that's headed to, I think, New York. Anyways, and then there's uh, two, two Calvin 42s over on, uh, on the opposite side of the road. And one's going to Southern Maine. The other one's going to Massachusetts. They're laid out exactly the same. One owner ordered his, and then the other owner came in and said, geez, I like how he's laid it out, which Stuart really liked, because he said, I got all the measurements for that one. So one's powered with an 800 Scania, and the other was the 900 horsepower Scania. Then they're laying up a Calvin 38 that's going to go to Massachusetts as a sport fisherman. And then they're building a 44 for a customer who presently owns a 36 Calvin that they built three years ago, but he wanted to go to a bigger boat. And then they're going to lay up a 42, and I think it's already under construction, but that's going to be for the main Marine Patrol. And she will be finished off at Farron's Boat Shop in uh, Walpole down by South Bristol. And then a, a yard I stopped into, and a lot of people would probably wonder why, but I go see Chris Hood. Chris Hood does a lot of work here in Maine, and mostly with Lyman Morse and Thomaston. And he's right now got a 35-footer uh, cruiser, 35-foot cruiser under construction for a customer from Palm Beach, Florida. And she's fancy. And right now she's on the strong back and she's coal molded hull. And then they're going to lay up a deck and the deck's going to be also built with carbon fiber so that they don't have to build it. Uh, they can build it lighter because it's going to be, a, it's going to be a lot stronger with the carbon fiber in between. Brooklyn Boatyard did the same thing with a couple of the Boatine boats that they've been building. Uh, but anyways, and then after that, they're going to they've got a customer that's interested in a 42 based on one of the 35s. And then they've got six of their sailboats that they've got to build this winter. And then a lot of restoration work that they're doing down there in Marblehead. But that's it for. Oh, I know one. Uh, I got to I, I was bouncing around uh, Jonesport one day and I stumbled across Jeremy Beale. He had just launched Alfred Osgood's 36 Wayne Beale that's got hard shines and she's powered with a 1400 horsepower man. He was out on the reach flying and fortunately saw a couple of us standing on the dock and came in and asked if we'd like to go for a ride. And I said, well, really, I'd like photographs. <laughs> so we got, a, I got a ride across the reach. She did over 50 Ooh. out of the box. She was doing 50 and it rode really well. It was really a nice riding boat. And it's one of the boats I think that actually would work well as a kind of a yacht because she's not so wide and wouldn't be so hard to push through the water. She rides really nice. That's the one. Well, no, he set the record in a 32 Wayne Beale with hard chimes, but I'm not sure that he's going to create a mold for the hard chine boat. But what he does is he adds them after, which is kind of interesting. But it was a nice riding boat. And at 50 miles an hour plus, it, you didn't. You knew you were going fast, but it wasn't a scary ride. It wasn't, you know, unstable or anything. She was really stable and rode well. Thank you, John. We have a lot of different subjects to cover today, 
And first, we'll go to author Dan Lee, who just released a new lobster boat book titled The Main Lobster Boat. It's 508 pages, the history of an iconic fishing vessel. I wondered if this should be looked at as a reference book or for more light reading. I guess I view it uh, hopefully as that it's a popular history, you might call it. Uh, one way to describe it, it's the history of the main lobster boat uh, as seen through the lives of its builders. So it's, it's, it's essentially um, a series of biographies from Will Frost on up to the modern day to Peter Cass. Uh, and in my, what I'm attempting to do is, is to lay out the history of the Maine Lobster Boat through the lives and the careers of each builder. So who was the first one you went to see? Peter Cass. That was the first, the first builder you went to? Went right to Cass. Yeah. yeah. Now, how did you come up with the idea for the book? So, you know, I my first book way back in 2004 was called Buzzards Bay Journey of Discovery. As I think, you know, I did a boating chapter in that book. And part of that chapter was, um, you know, I looked I looked at the, uh, the lobster industry on Buzzards Bay and I actually went out on a, on a um, lobster boat out of Fairhaven. And I started to get interested in the boats then and the fishery. <clears throat> Fast forward, I would say 10 years, I started riding commuter ferry out of Hull, Mass. So if you're not familiar with Hull, um, it's right next to me here in the uh, south shore of uh, Boston. Hull's still somewhat of a fishing, fishing village with plenty of lobster boats in it. And Right next to me at the ferry dock where I pulled out in and out every uh, morning and, and you know afternoon was a small fleet of lobster boats. So I started looking at them. I'd see them come in every day and go out. You know, and I, and I kind of, I felt myself being <clears throat> really like attracted to these boats. I, I kept, I just kept looking at them. Now I, was, I, I just was fascinated by, by the way they looked, you know, by the way they moved, all those things. And so, you know, I started, I was, I was thinking at the time, I was trying to think of an idea for a book. I had a, uh, just a couple of things I was interested in writing about. Uh, I write a lot about uh, the American Indian, the history of the American Indian. So I thought maybe that was, I could do something else there. Uh, the, other, the other thing was boats. So I had a couple ideas for boats, boat books. And I said, hey, why not, <clears throat> why not take a look at the, the, the lobster boat? So, um, you know, I've, I figured out it, it came from Maine, essentially, right? So I started looking at what was out there, what was written about the book. And what I found was interesting, right? There was a couple of books about it, good books, you know, like Virginia Thorndike's book, etc. cetera. Um, there was a lot of information scattered across the in internet. Um, and, you know, there, there was, there was some other things out, out and about John, like you've got a, a lot of material, obviously. Um, but what I saw was that there was no one book where, you know, a guy like me, a, a boater uh, from, you know, say Massachusetts or Connecticut or elsewhere in new England 
could go just to, to read a book about the history of the lobster boat. So I, I thought, you know, hey, if I can, if I can do some original research and then pull all of this existing scattered information together, put it into a decent book, you know, that's, that's fairly enjoyable for people to read uh, and, and put it on the shelf. Uh, I thought that would be a kind of a great thing to try to do. So, so that's what, uh, that's what I did. So what are some of the boats in Hull? Do you know who built them? Well, I didn't get too much into it. Um, you know, I, I did go up to the, I was up at the Hull Lobstermen's Association uh, for a for a safe boating course. <laughs> Done. I didn't get too much into the actual boats because they were all fiberglass. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, yes, they were lobster boats, but I, I found shortly after I started looking at, you know, the history of it, I was really most interested in, you know, way back with, with the, uh, the wooden lobster boats. So how did you find out about Peter Cass? Well, I mean, it doesn't take too long, you know, <laughs> doing, doing research to figure out and talking to people that, you know, Peter's the guy who's, who's doing it, who's, who's building the most wooden lobster boats in Maine today. You know, he does a great job. Everybody loves his boat. So I thought, Hey, you know, why not go see what's what's going on today? You know, and and uh, so I went up and saw Peter. Peter is relatively young for a Maine wooden lobster boat builder, and his shop is a bit south of a cluster of older boat builders further down east, centered around Beals Island. We talked about that, starting with Isaac Beal. Yeah, and. You know, Isaac, Isaac Beal is, is a really interesting character, as you know, lives, mm -hmm. lives up on, you know, Alley's Bay. And I went up to see Isaac and he, he's a very honest person, very straightforward person. And he, he told me a lot of, a lot of interesting things too, you know, around, around that, that kind of thing. And what Isaac told me is he said, you'd get one week's pay. And I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, he said, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, well, you work all winter and you'd get one week's pay out of it. <laughs> well, said, it was, okay. a, it was something to do. Like you said, it was just something to do in the winter, you know? Right. But you also probably never got to uh, John Butler. But he always told me it was swapping a buck for a buck. He says, the only place you really make money is in storage and repair. <laughs> yeah, that's about that. That's I did not talk to him, but that's. That's a common theme, you know, and yeah. I was, I was honest about that in the book. I said, this isn't something you want to get into. It's, it's something you do because you love, you know, um, it's not something that, <clears throat> it's not something you do for the money. For sure. but, you, but you have to have a good business sense. You can't let things slide. You have to charge for everything you need to because there's too yeah. many pitfalls in boat building. Well, and that's that's a great point, John. Uh, the problem was, you know, as you know, they never uh, the, the tra traditional boat builders never did that. You know, they mm -hmm. they did their thing where they uh, took payments in thirds, so they took a third up front, or or third, you know, third in the middle, and then when they launched the boat, they'd hoped that the buyer would pay them that last third. And, and you know, like with Bert Frost up in Jonesport, 
and he got stiffed at least a couple of times. So, oh, yeah. you know, one of them, uh, one of the guys was some kind of criminal from New York who just, you know, said, I'm not paying you. Right. And, and, uh, according to, you know, sooner up there at Jonesport shipyard told me this stuff, but, you know, one of the guys was just this rich playboy who just seemed to think, you know, he didn't have to pay him. So he just didn't pay him. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, that, you know, early in my career, I walked into Randy Young, who's one of the sons of the Young brothers. And he had the same problem. He had the boat in the water, but he still had the boat. And, you know, today, you don't, if you don't sign the builder certificate, they can't, they can't do anything. They can't register that boat. So a lot of them will hold that builder certificate until they've got money in hand. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's an interesting, that's, that's good. One thing I try to do in this book is just be very truthful, right? Mm -hmm. I I try to be honest and truthful. And, you know, the truth is a lot of these guys, I think, got into the, they got into it because, I don't know, their family was in it. Their father was in it. They kind of fell into it. They felt like they had no options. Not all of them, but. Yeah, I think there's some of them. You know, you go to Jimmy Beal. And Keegan was in the shop for a little while, but he didn't like it. So he never really worked in the shop. He did when he was, you know, <laughs> yeah. his, you know, teenage years and maybe early 20s. But after he was out on his own and fishing well and, and doing okay, out of the shop he went. And, you know, there's some kids who absolutely love it. Look at Jeremy Beal. I mean, oh, yeah. he's a prime example of one kid who absolutely loved it. Yeah, so he's more like Pete Cass, right? Yeah. So all, all I'm, say, I'm not disagreeing with you, John. I'm just saying that, you know, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of guys that I think have just done it because that's what they had to do. And they'd rather would have been fishing. Another builder down there is Willis Beal. You know, so that was the second person I, I interviewed. Was Willis? Yeah. 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 Willis is a very, very interesting man. I like Willis a lot. Yeah, he he's uh, Willis is not. Yeah, he's an outstanding individual. You know, I, I really felt, I, you know, it was uh, I, I expected something a lot different. And I don't know what I expected. But when I talked to Willis, I felt more like I was talking to like a banking executive than a than a tradesman. I mean, he's so you know what I mean? He's Willis is so well spoken, so mm-hmm. polite. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, he it's. Uh, Kind of an amazing man, I guess. Oh yeah, and he and those models he builds are incredible. Yeah. So the day I went up, John, was the day that he launched the little uh, little version of the silver dollar. Yeah. So it was April twenty third, twenty twenty one, and I I really didn't know what I was getting into, to be <laughs> honest. But Joe Joe said, you know, hey, there's something special going on here today. So you know, I walked in and. and the little the, the silver dollar was sitting there and it was you know of course it was absolutely beautiful and um there's a whole crowd of people in there and you know i got to see that whole thing which was kind of a mini version of the the traditional beals island boat launch so uh that was just fantastic yeah and the story behind that because it was actually built for a kid who saved up and saved up and saved up that wanted to buy the real silver dollar and <laughs> But or maybe fortunately, yeah. that boat went over to uh, Randy Durkee on Islesboro, uh, and he's rebuilding it because it needed to be completely rebuilt. 
We talked about several more main boat builders, and we will be saving those for future stories. If you spend any time investigating Maine lobster boats, you'll quickly learn about the lobster boat races. You know, one thing I learned about these guys, John, from talking to especially Calvin and um, Glenn, you know, th- these are competitive guys. <laughs> you know, yep. they- you, you never met the Young Brothers. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, yeah, they were very competitive, too. Because between all of them, because it really launched their boat building careers, was the Young Brothers, the Hollands, and the Duffies. Not so much anybody else, I don't believe, used the, the media and racing as much as they did to promote their boats. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that was interesting to me because, John, I didn't even I didn't even know about lobster boat racing before I started looking, researching the book, you know, and I said, hey, what's this? And <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Dougie and, and everyone, John, they said, hey, you got to get up to Jonesport, you know, and go to a race. So I went out last year and, and jumped. Uh, Randy Durkee was was kind enough to have me on the Audrey May. Right. And he took me out, showed me all the old boats and I we raced, you know, c- came in second behind Alan Johnson's AJ. Uh, 28 yeah but it was yeah, fun, high voltage you know? yeah high voltage so yeah well that was the last time he won <laughs> what's that he, that's the last time high voltage won because right now audrey may can't be beat really nope how did that happen <laughs> Someone, the warranty dougie on the engine, the engine? <laughs> dougie must have worked on the engine no, I don't think so. I think that, you know, they know how to turn those engines up and you have to use a, a laptop because it's an electronic uh, engine. So they, they probably got somebody from the company to come in and, and give it a little boost. Well, I don't know anything about that. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. Uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, as you know, not, I mean, none of us, including myself, are getting any younger, right? But, but in particular, if you look at that, that boat building crowd there, you know, Dougie, Calvin, Willis, they're, they're all, you know, around that 77 to 81 uh-huh. type age. Even the younger guys, you, you, you know, like um, Richard Stanley is in his 60s and and, and even Joe and, and Jamie Lowell, you know, they're, they're, they're not exactly young anymore either. So um, I looked at that and I said, hey, these guys aren't going to be around forever. Look at, and if I could get even some of that history out of them, get it into a book and put it on the shelf, I felt it would be worth doing, you know. As we were running out of time, Dan wanted to thank one more person. One other thing I would like to mention, you know, I one person I'm very indebted to uh, is Richard Lunt from MDI. So so Dick Lunt yep. did, did, a, did a vast, body of of research in in around 1970 1974 where he he came from on desert island he he interviewed um jar he interviewed um the boat builders there and then he went up to beals and interviewed uh bert and a bunch of people up there um he he posted um a large quantity of his research online that was available to me uh, he used his research, <clears throat> excuse me, for a doctoral uh, dissertation when he was at the University of Maine. But um, I was able to use his interviews from around 1970. That's Dan Lee, author of the new book, The Maine Lobster Boat, History of an Iconic Fishing Vessel.
published by Down East Books. Thank you, Dan. Next, we head out to sea. We're going to talk about the Golden Globe Race. It's a solo, non-stop, round-the-world sailboat race that starts and ends in England. It's open to anyone over 18, but entrants must show prior ocean sailing experience of at least 8,000 miles plus another 2,000 miles solo, as well as an additional 2,000 miles in their Golden Globe boat. But <laughs> these boats aren't really race boats. Only 22 brand boats are allowed, and they're all fiberglass production boats designed before 1988 with a production run of at least 20 boats from the same mold. The boats must be between 32 and 36 feet long with a full-length keel with an attached rudder at the end. These are not race boats at all. They're given a safety inspection before the start of the race to make sure that the boat is ready for ocean conditions and that it has all the proper safety gear. And that's not all. Entrants are not allowed to use modern electronic aids. The boats must have a satellite tracking system that the skippers cannot see. Race control uses that to track the boats. The boats must have a satellite text system to the race headquarters only, plus two handheld satellite phones for up to four short messages per day. Each boat has a sealed box with two GPS portable chart plotters for emergency use only. Breaking into those boxes disqualifies the boat and it will be considered retired from the race. So, for you non-boaters, it's like entering a very long road race in your grandma's car with no cell phone. The race started on September 2nd with 32 entrants starting. Already there are four who have dropped out of the race and 16 are listed as retired, which usually means that they have broken into the sealed GPS box on their boat. There are two American entries. One has since retired. The other American, Elliot Smith, is currently in 10th place. There is only one female entrant. That's Kirsten Neuschaefer. She's from South Africa but she bought her boat up in Canada, and John talked with her a while when she was bringing that boat back south. Oh, yeah, I've been following that. Yeah, it's a, it's a boat for crazy people, I think. You know, in order to... Uh, the, bo the boat has to be old and has to be... It has a to be vintage production. Yeah, yeah full keel. Huh? Um, definitely not a race boat at all. Nope. And the other thing is, is that there's a lot of safety factors, which is good. But all of the uh, 
you can't use anything like newer than what they would have in 1968 when the first one ran. Right. Because I nope. think if I'm not mistaken, there were eight competitors. One died because he committed suicide. That was Donald Crowhurst. He was actually doing circles in South Atlantic. And I don't know what happened to him, but they, they found his boat, but never him. They, they always said that he committed suicide. Huh. Uh, one guy went around the world and got off Cape Horn and decided to just keep going over to Tahiti. He didn't come home at all. <laughs> you know, he just thought Tahiti would be the place to go. And then, the, of course, the winner was uh, Robin Knox Johnson. And he was the only one that actually complete, competed, completed the race. So he's been uh, kind of the head of the race for a little while, but he's not any longer. Uh, but I got to meet Kirsten. And don't ask me to pronounce her last name. Uh, but she's South African, and she was actually here uh, in Maine uh, a couple of years ago. And she stored her boat. She was working for Skip Novak. And he's got uh, the pelagic boats that go up into the Arctic and the Antarctic. And they take uh, chartered cruises to, for people like National Geographic, those type of scientists, whatever. And she sails them up there to do whatever thing they want to do, whether it's photographing or do uh, oceanographic work or, you know, yeah. but a very, very capable woman and does not mind at all being alone out to sea. In fact, one of the quotes in the new issue that I was able to get was that when she went through one of the gates, they have gates that they have to go through to get to hand off photographs and that sort of stuff and mail. <laughs> Basically, they said she was very short of words. It doesn't bother her to be out there. Now, some of them are starting to show some issues, and they've actually said so in the last uh, update that you get. If you go to the Glo Golden Globe Race 2022, there's a whole website on it, and you can actually follow the boats as they're going down. Right now, she's off of um, Recife, which is in Brazil, and she's gone way west. I think she's probably you know, a hundred miles to the West. Now, I don't know why she did that, uh, but maybe there's better wind over there. Maybe she's going to have a better angle for Cape Town, uh, but they have to go through these gates. And one of the gates is, I think you got to go through an Island off of, uh, off of uh, uh, South America. And it's kind of, it's just off South America, maybe about four or 500 miles, maybe longer. And, uh, but anyways, so she's in fifth place now. She was in second, but it's a long way to go. And I, th I think her boat's good. And it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how these boats compare. They really like the Rustler 36, but I actually think her boat's faster. Uh, I'm not sure what some of these other, uh, the guy that's leading has got a Biscay 36. And there's all kinds of uh, interesting boats, but she's got a Cape George 36. I think it was designed and built on the West Coast, but she found it up in Canada and she went up there late two years ago and got kind of stuck. And I can't remember what harbor she was in, but she was lucky because whoever was in the harbor had the where for all to help her haul the boat out, get it in a shed, and then they helped her put it together. And they had a heck of a time. They went the town got in, in behind it. And so, you know, she's a very likable person. So I can see, you know, why people, you know, join her team. So 
You know, I think she's got as, as good a chance as anybody to be in the top, you know, the top three, you know, a podium finish, but she could actually pull it out because in the Southern Ocean, she's been down there before. She was used to uh, take uh, catamarans from South Africa. That's where she grew up. And she used to deliver them to like New Zealand. And that's huh. not a fun thing to be doing. No, catamarans, catamarans are not my idea of taking down there. Yeah, going by the horn on those lumpy seas, boy. Oh yeah, nope, nope. She because yeah. she would leave Cape Town and then she, but she would go the other way. You know, she'd go go east. Oh. I mean, she came out of Cape Town. She'd go east, but still, you get in there and it, 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 there's nothing to stop those waves. They get up to a hundred feet. No, thank you. You yeah. know, not in a catamaran. But, anyways, I think she'll do all right. So, you know, well, she's probably got, she's done about 5,000 miles. She's only got another 25 to go, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it is. No, 22,500 uh, 22, miles about. So she's got a ways to go. How, so, far, how far behind the first place is she? She's about 300 miles. So it's so pretty he, close. Yeah, she's, they're all within striking distance of each other. The guy that's behind her could be scary. Uh, Damien Gallio. And he's a Frenchman. And he actually had to go back to France, fix a wind vane, and then he would leave after that. And I think he left six days after the other ones did. And so, but he's already behind her by, he's, he's about 250 miles, well, 300 miles behind her when I wrote my results on the 10th. I don't know how many miles, because he keeps knocking off miles off all of these people. So, you know, he's a Frenchman, and most of the French guys are very, very good at these long-distance ocean races. Huh. And in the next issue of Maine Coastal News, I also wrote up or copied an article that uh, Jean-Luc Vandenheid had written because he had done this race, and he actually describes the race, gives you some of the history about it, and what you have to go through to compete to complete it. And it's not an easy, easy race at all. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, that do like the Vendee Globe and those type of races, they've got communications, they've got everything. These people don't. The only thing they've got is to sit and do calculations from the sextants doing uh, sun sightings. But other than that, there's no... Uh, talking to people until you hit the uh, photo uh, dates. So it's kind of interesting to see because there's a few of them that have already started to have a show problems of being alone. They don't like it. <laughs> well, even though they have to uh, have what 4,000 miles of solo experience before they mm -hmm. can even enter the race, yep. I think, think that would be shaken out, but um, obviously not. No. No, I think a lot of them, they had, they were able to connect with people when they were doing some of that solo right. sailing. Yeah. You know, and a lot of them, they're not racer racers, you know, because like John Marshall, do you remember John when he was at Hinkley? Yep. He was very interesting because he said, if I can save a quarter of a knot over the, uh, the length around the world, how much did I gain on you? And it's really when you, when you start calculating it out, that's a lot of distance. Yeah. So, you know, those guys that get the nth degree out of a boat, you know, she's actually sailed this boat from Canada to South America, South Africa, then back up to France. So she's got a lot of time in this boat. So 
but she's not a race eraser. Mm-hmm. And so that may be a little bit of a, a of a problem, but you know, I think she's got the endurance. She's young enough. Uh, some of the guys, uh, the older guys are having real problems. They're, they're starting to swell up their knees and stuff because they're not walking. And so one of them has to walk in the boat, inside the boat every day to make sure that he gets good blood flow to his legs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's some problems popping up. And then one guy, he, he got some sort of uh, infection and he was going to go stop at an island up, you know, further up in the middle of the uh, before they got to the Azores or around the Azores. And he opted not to do it. He says, oh, I'll be fine. Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're out there in the ocean. If you turn sour, it's not going to go, go well. But Right. That's the Golden Globe race. When I checked last Saturday, Kirsten was in third place, about to take over second place as they passed the tip of Africa. Go, Kirsten. Next, we'll jump west one ocean over to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Our friends at Off Center Harbor, namely Steve Stone, have been following a young Aussie named Tom Robinson as he was attempting to row across the Pacific Ocean from Peru to Australia in his home-built boat. Tom is nearly halfway now, and Steve has been talking with Tom by satellite phone occasionally. And what follows is a portion of their last conversation. I've been uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, so I'm so happy to happy to connect with you. Uh, yeah, it's great. Wow. <laughs> so, so talk me through what's around you. Set the scene for me. Okay. Well, I'm sitting inside the cabin now. I've got both the main hatch and the forward hatch sort of mostly closed off, so I can hear you better. It's blowing about 15 knots from the east-southeast at the moment, which is pretty typical out here. The boat's walking and rolling around as usual, hanging to the sea anchor. sun is beaming down. It's pretty warm inside the cabin here. It must be about 30 degrees Celsius in the cabin, maybe more. It's funny, when I'm rowing, because of the trade winds, it's comfortable all the time. It's not, it's not like I'm, I'm drowning in sweat. So as soon as I take a break over lunch and sit inside the cabin, I just start sweating profusely and yeah, it must be, I don't know. It's not crazy, but just means you're drinking more water. There's not really much cloud. There's a bit of cloud on the horizon, but not much. And um, there's just, there's just so much life out here. It's just, it's really spectacular. I feel like I'm watching a documentary film like a, a, um, a David Attenborough film some, some days. Like this morning we had a big manta ray come up near the boat and yesterday there was flying fish and rhinos and whales and, and squid flying about. It was, it was really spectacular yesterday and yeah, there's been one day in this journey where I haven't seen a fish and most other days there's rhinos that are swimming about everywhere. There's, there's thousands of them. And there's also tuna and there's, yeah, there's just, there's so much life out here. It's really, really beautiful to see. Well, I'm imagining that, um, you know, you had a tough time in Peru. Um, you had some good, really good stuff too, but you had a tough time. And, and then all of a sudden you're alone in the ocean. Tell me about that. Yeah, so 
And I finally turned the corner before I reached the Galapagos and started heading due west up until about two weeks ago, up until about day 75. I was just on this most amazing high. It just kept on getting better and better. It was just so beautiful and amazing to be out there. And I'm looking through my log now and every few days it starts with this trip just keeps on getting better. And every few days there was a new experience. I'd catch a different fish or I'd I'd be a big squall come through or I'd see some flying fish or whatever it was. But every few days there was a new experience that, 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 that really added to what I was already experiencing. And it was everything that I'd sort of hoped and dreamt about for this journey. And so I was just in this amazing state where it was the current was helping me along, the breeze was light, I was rowing really hard all day, I was using my sextant often, I was catching fish every three days and eating really well and it was just it was just such an amazing period. And it still is like that really. It's just a bit tougher mentally now. But and during that time, and it's still the case now, I didn't miss anything. There was nothing I didn't miss my life back home. I didn't really um, miss people. I didn't miss food. I was, it seemed to me that I was completely at peace with myself out here at sea and that everything I could want and have wanted was surrounding me on the boat. And it was just, it was truly magical. It really was, yeah, really, really special. I can't imagine that kind of high. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, it was just, it was really remarkable. And it was nice. It was this weird sensation of, this is something I dreamt about nine years ago. I'm out here now, a different person than I was nine years ago. But it's still, it, it's still so amazing and it's better than I thought it would be. And to, to sort of have that dream come true and be better than you expect it to be was just really powerful. And yeah, it's just so amazing. Yeah, really, really cool. <laughs> I get a, a lump in my throat and kind of a tear in my eye when you say that. It's just so touching. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it has the same effect on me too. <laughs> yeah. It's so much work. It really is so much work to get to this point. And uh, but at no point has it seemed like it isn't worth it. Like it, it just totally is worth all the pain and all the hardship and, and all the cost and everything imaginable. It's all worth it. It'd be worth it just for one day of the magic out here. It really is pretty spectacular some days. Mm. It, yeah. Mm. And then this, um, I've got this sort of rule on board where, like, I've, I've got an iPod that was a gift, and, and, and I told myself that I wouldn't use the iPod unless things got really bad. I wanted to make this adventure as pure and as simple and as raw as possible, and so that means not chatting on the sat phone all the time and it means no music and no audio books and all this sort of thing and so and I've been able to stick to that goal still which I'm very proud of and so to have no music it sounds funny but to not have any music to accompany you during these amazing highs and lows it sort of adds to the experience I think music can can it's an amazing drug and it can be really really great a really heightening experience. But to have none of that out here and just have my own emotions and the ocean around me is sort of really raw and pure and simple and so, so fulfilling. It's really, yeah, so special. 
Yeah, it's it's really amazing to hear you say that. Tell me about how all that faded away for you coming more solo. It seemed it seemed like it was pretty instantaneous. Like I rode away from the coast and waved goodbye to my friends on the yachts and in the boats, and then I was left alone, and it was sort of grey and dull and really calm. The sea was a willy, and I didn't I didn't really have any longing for people or contact and. There wasn't, like, it, it was a really quick going from one day being surrounded by all these people, the next day nothing. It's been like that since. And I, I, I can't say that I've missed it. I can't say that it's been hard to to be out here alone. I think I'm, I'm very capable of being alone for long periods and things like I could keep on going like this for a little while. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't think it was ever a struggle. Let's talk about the mental side for a minute. Um, yeah, look, I was having a conversation with the son yesterday afternoon and I thought, oh, that's a bit odd. <laughs> but um, look, as far as I can tell, mentally I'm quite, I'm still quite capable. I do find myself talking to myself very often, um, almost incessantly. Um, and I have a chat to the son in the afternoon before it sets and have a chat to the fish. Um, but otherwise, I would say that I'm still quite sane. Mm. I guess that's debatable. Yeah. I'm pretty good. yeah, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe we're supposed to be talking with the sun and the fish and so on. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it could be right. I think it could be right. It was funny, the sun sort of is this big object in my life, obviously tells me where I am sometimes and it marks the beginning and the end of the day and I can really see how the, how many and um, ancient civilizations used to worship the sun and now I live my life by it and it seems pretty important up there. Yeah, so is the boat holding up? Is it dry when you need it to be? How's the performance? How are the systems? Do you still have all six oars? How, how's all that? She's holding up really well, and she's proving to be a really good sea boat, and everything I hoped she would be, she's turning out to be. Um, I've still got all six oars, which is good. That's really nice. And the nav light's broken, which is annoying. I made a, a replacement about 40 days ago, and it just stopped working last night. So my job tomorrow will be to try and fix the replacement that I made. Um, Everything else is holding up well. The sliding seat still slides nicely. Gary's me replacing every so often, but that's all part of it. Um, she rides to the sea anchor well, which is nice. Um, but it's wet. It's wet on board. Because like, there's only... <laughs> because the freeboard's so low, it, it, it only takes 10 to 15 knots, so I'm getting splashed with waves and... And the cockpit's always wet, constantly rolling side to side. And, and there's a little hatch over the foredeck that keeps me cool at night. I try and keep it open just a little bit at night uh, so I can be cool while I sleep. But even if it's blowing 10 knots, there'll be the odd little wave that'll break over the bow and send, send a stream coming down onto my, onto my legs, which is just endlessly frustrating. And that's all part of the journey out here. <laughs> right. No, it's a really good boat. Um, 
the cabin's very small, but it is uh, no bigger than I would want. It's just the perfect size, really. I thought I might struggle with being in such a tiny space for such a long period, but I've got enough room to lie down and enough room to sit up and eat and navigate and write my log. And yeah, it just feels like a really beautiful, cozy little home. And I don't think I'd want anything bigger. That's Tom Robinson out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, rowing from Peru to Australia, and right now having a hard time making the Marquesas. The Off-Center Harbor is a subscription website with many boating and boat building videos. Besides following Tom Robinson, that's offcenterharbor.com. That will bring this edition of Boat Talk to an end. Help keep Boat Talk afloat. Your monetary support is essential to help make great music and spoken word programs sound and secure. Please call 469-6600 and make a pledge right now. Or better yet, become a sustaining member. And thank you. And don't forget about the International Maritime Film Festival starting the On Demand Festival on Friday, November 18th. Information at internationalmaritimefilmfestival.com.